The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. Hi, I'm Brad Bannon, and this is Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist, a political analyst for WGN-TV and radio in Chicago, and a columnist for The Hill in Washington, D.C. You can read my take on the presidential race in The Hill every week. Just Google muckrack.com front slash brad dash bannon that's uh, muckrack m-u-c-k-r-a-c-k dot com front slash brad dash bannon my new contribution to the hill is my take on mayor pete and his rise to the top of the leaderboard in iowa and new hampshire My company, Bannon Communications Research, pulls for and designs research-based media and message strategies for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. If you want to learn more about me and my political polling and communications company, go to Facebook.com front slash Bannon dash communications dash research. My Twitter handle is at Brad Bannon. My thanks to executive producer Marco Maldi, who keeps me in line and makes sure the trains run on time. Today we'll discuss presidential politics. Our guest in the first half hour is Charlie Cook, one of America's shrewdest political observers. Nick Guthman, founder and executive director of Our Blue Future, joins the provocative progressive political panel with our own Mark Grimaldi in the second half hour. If you want to be part of the show and talk directly to me and our guest, call us at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7453. These are the questions that we'll discuss today in the first half hour. Inquiring minds want to know, first, the Democratic presidential candidates do very well in matchups nationally against Donald Trump, but less well in the battleground states. Can the Democratic presidential nominee take back the electoral votes in the industrial Midwest that went to Trump in 2016? Question two, what kind of Democratic candidate has the best chance to win in the battleground states? An aggressive progressive like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, or a pragmatic progressive like Joe Biden or Mayor Pete? And third, is Medicare for all a good winning issue for Democrats in 2020? Our guest in this half hour is Charlie Cook, founder and publisher of the Cook Political Report. Charlie is one of America's most prominent political observers. He is a frequent guest on Meet the Press, and this is his third 
appearance on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. How are you doing today, Charlie? I'm doing great, Brad. Thanks for having me on. Uh, oh, it's always a pleasure to have you on. We know you're very busy. Okay, let's uh, start with this. Uh, going back to 2016, uh, many political observers, including myself, uh, kept looking at the national polls. Uh, we saw that uh, Hillary Clinton was leading in the national polls and thought that was uh, good enough for a Hillary Clinton victory. Um, I was wrong, and it turns out that uh, I think one of the problems is we weren't we were paying so much attention to the national numbers that we didn't really take a good close look at what's happening in the battleground states. Now, the Cook Political Report, uh, in conjunction with the Kaiser Family Foundation, uh, just did a survey of, I believe, four battleground states. So uh, tell us what you've learned and what's going on in the battleground states than what you see in the national polling picture. Well, what we're seeing is the, the president has, President Trump has, there is a path to reelection. It's a narrow path. It's probably wider than it was in 2016, but I, you know we forget uh, uh, just how extraordinary that election was. I mean, it you know normally you know historically you win by two percentage points, you're probably going to win the electoral college, but you know it depends on where your vote is, and to have uh, three big states like uh, Michigan two tenths of a point, which uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania seven tenths of a point. I mean, they really threaded the needle. Uh, in a way that was was pretty remarkable. And the fact that the Clinton campaign didn't really target uh, Wisconsin and Michigan uh, kind of helped exacerbate it. The survey that we did, a series of four surveys that we did with the Kaiser Family Foundation, is we were looking at, uh, you know, did 600-plus interviews with registered voters in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota. And just to look at the three that, that effectively gave President Trump the, the, uh, the, the election, uh, we found that 32 percent, we did not do matchups with individual candidates, because not all these candidates are, are, are well-defined, but basically 32 percent were either definitely or probably going to vote for President Trump in Michigan, 32 percent. 41 percent were definitely or probably going to vote Democratic. So Democrats had a, like a nine-point edge in terms of the, the sort of generic Trump-Democrat uh, matchup in Michigan. In Pennsylvania, it was 33, definitely or probably Trump. 40, definitely probably Democrat. Wisconsin, 33, definite probable Trump. 42 percent, definite probable Democrat. That um, there is um, uh, that basically he has got to pull out an extraordinary turnout among the groups that he did last time, uh, non-college whites, uh, sort of, in other words, working class whites, uh, small town rural voters, and whites who, uh, you know, evangelical or conservative Catholics who go to church at least once a week. That those were the groups where he ran up the score and uh, and gave us gave us a bit of a surprise. Uh, now the one thing is, and that uh, is that uh, that disparity between the popular vote and electoral college vote, it actually might be worse 
in 2020 than it was in 2016, because in all likelihood, whoever the Democrat is, they're probably going to win California by a bigger margin than Hillary Clinton did, and they're probably going to win New York by a bigger margin, and they'll probably win Illinois by a bigger margin. And while President Trump will probably carry Texas, it won't be by the margin he had last time. So what you're going to see is the the Republican vote is just more efficiently allocated around the country, and Democrats waste a lot of votes running up the score. So the numbers crunchers like David Wasserman in our shop and Nate Cohen at the New York Times estimate that a Democrat might be able to win the popular vote by as many as five million votes, uh, three or four percentage points, and could, not would, but could still lose the Electoral College. So you're right. We're going to be watching the state polling a lot more closely, and I, my guess is you're going to be, we're going to be looking at a footprint that's going to be wider, and that will include some states that weren't getting looked at quite as closely last time, like Michigan and Wisconsin. And you'll see more network polling in those states. And uh, presumably you'll see the polls being conducted close, uh, on closer to Election Day and not cut off uh, three, four, five days a week in advance. Okay, we're going to go to break now, but we get back from break. We'll have more with Charlie Cook, uh, publisher and founder of the Cook Political Report, uh, talking about the survey that the uh, Cook Report did uh, in the battleground states. We'll be back right after these messages. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. I want nothing, no quid pro quo, bro. See, it's right here in black licorice case closed, okay? I have to go get on this chopper right now. Wait, wait, uh, hold on, Mr. President, but that wasn't the only conversation you've had with Ambassador Sondland. It doesn't matter. I'm, I still told him no quid pro quo at least once, so any quid that I get after that, that's on them. So that's how it works, see, okay? Besides... <laughs> I don't even know this Ambassador Sondland guy. That's fake news. But he's donated a million dollars to your inauguration. And you appointed him to the EU. Well, I know him, but I don't know him, know him. I never like, met him in person. Uh, look, I'd love to explain, but this battery on this chopper is going to die very, very soon. So. Oh, it's you, Ambassador Sondland. You you going the horn for me? Mr. Trump, can you at least elaborate on your comments yesterday on Fox and Friends where you said Adam Schiff was the whistleblower? No, no, no. I never said he was the whistleblower, okay? It's so great to finally meet you for the first time, by the way. Oh, 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 right, 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 right. Keep the uh, quid pro quo on the Lolo. Got it. I just was leaving right now. Uh, Hang on. I I just want to go on the record and say, you guys need to lay off my boy. Everybody loves his ass. Thank you. Ukraine, Russia. That's enough, that's enough. They'll do anything for this man. I know, I asked. All right. I gotta go. In conclusion, no quid pro quo. Oh, there there definitely was. And live from New York, it's It's Saturday night! That, of course, was the uh, opening Saturday night on Saturday Night Live uh, on impeachment. the president, and of course Gordon Sunland, his ambassador uh, to the EU, who apparently president doesn't know very well. 
Anyway, uh, we're talking presidential politics on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon today. And our guest is Charlie Cook, the publisher and founder of the Cook Political Report. Uh, Charlie is one of America's foremost political analysts. You probably see him a lot on uh, Meet the Press, on MSNBC, or on the Sunday morning show on the network. Uh, Charlie, one of the interesting things about your battleground survey uh, was what you found about uh, pub attitudes in the battleground state voters to uh, health care. Uh, it seems to me, for good or bad, the defining issue in the Democratic presidential race uh, is Medicare for all. Uh, how did uh, voters in the battleground states uh, feel about Medicare for all? You know, I think it's important to make a distinction between which voters are you talking to. Are you talking about Democratic primary voters and the Democratic base? Or are you talking about uh, uh, swing voters? You talk about the voters that are, um, uh, you know, basically up for grabs and more likely going to uh, uh, going to determine the outcome of the election. When you look at swing voters, um, there is, um, let's see, I'm looking at uh, you're just combining the four states together. Among swing voters, only 36 percent, when the, the question was a national Medicare for all plan that will eliminate private insurance. Um, and 36 percent in those four swing states thought that it was a good idea, 62 percent a bad idea. Now, you look overall, uh, you know, the numbers are somewhat different and certainly in the Democratic base. But among the swing voters, that's uh, the, the, the ending private Medicare for all. I mean, as a concept, uh, you know, who could be against that? But when you get down to eliminating private insurance, that's where it's a deal breaker with swing voters uh, and with a lot of moderates. Because let's face it, a lot of union members, for example, gave up their, you know, gave up uh, wage increases in order to get uh, uh, very generous health insurance benefits, uh, 39% of all uh, Democratic voters actually um, have private employer, between 18 and 64, have private employer-provided health insurance. So this is why I think you started seeing uh, some backing off, uh, even even Elizabeth Warren, some backing off among uh, many of the Democratic candidates where they're not quite as gung-ho there as they were when they got a little pushback on the private insurance aspect. Okay. Uh, one of the things that was uh, surprised me a little bit about your survey, uh, people tend to group uh, Medicare for All together with the Green New Deal, but uh, in your survey, you found that swing voters uh, like the Green, Green New Deal. What, what makes that different from Medicare for All? I think that the thing is, if you just said Medicare for all and just didn't go into the eliminating private insurance, my guess is the numbers would be somewhat different. But Green New Deal in and of itself, I mean, it's sort of when something goes from a bumper sticker to a concrete proposal that might have negative implications for you. I don't think there's a widespread perception among a lot of people that Green New Deal 
would hurt them in any way. So it's easy to be supportive. And in the four states combined, uh, 67% thought that a Green New Deal um, was a was a good idea, 30, only 31% a bad idea. But that's a long way. It's basically reversed the Medicare for all. Um, and again, I think it's the private health insurance that the, uh, the fly in the ointment for Medicare for all, if you didn't put that in, then it would probably be different, uh, different, different answer, different, different responses. Well, let, let me ask you this. Uh, it seems to me that the uh, two kinds of Democratic presidential candidates, you've got uh, two of the major candidates I would describe as aggressive progressives. Uh, that would mm-hmm. be Bernie Sanders uh, and Elizabeth right. Warren. Then you've got a type of Democratic candidate who I'd call uh, pragmatic progressives. And I include in that bunch uh, Joe Biden uh, and Mayor Pete. Now, my question right. is, which type is better suited to winning the battleground states? Let's face it, we got to win the battleground states to get rid of Donald Trump. You know, it, it, it gets to that age-old question of what does electability mean? And, and I do think that electability is in the eye of the beholder. Now, the more traditional, conventional view of electability is who can win swing voters, the people between the 240-yard lines. And that certainly is one definition. But another definition is who can get a, an enthusiastic vote and uh, a strong vote out of the party base, uh, out of the people that are the, the intensely Democratic vote. Who can get a good turnout there? And obviously, I mean, you can find a lot of people that support Elizabeth Warren or, or support Bernie Sanders who see them as more electable than a, uh, a Joe Biden or a Pete Buttigieg or an Amy Klobuchar or something like that. Personally, I, I think that it's nice in life to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, and that what you want is somebody that could get a good vote out of the base but can also reach in the middle and pull swing voters in, that you have to strike a balance, and that any, any candidate that is absolutely fabulous on getting the base out is more likely than not going to have some problems in the middle. And any candidate that, uh, that is, is really, really, really strong with swing voters uh, may have some challenges getting a strong base vote out. So you try to, you know, you try to come up with some compromises, somebody that could do reasonably well at, at both. And I think in those, uh, you know, the, in those swing states, um, you are talking about uh, states with disproportionately a disproportionately large number of working class whites, uh, that non-college whites, um, and they tend to be uh, a little less liberal on cultural issues. Um, and, um, you know, they, they, you know, back when a lot of them were in the Democratic Party, they were some of the least liberal people in the Democratic Party. Some of them have left. Some of them are still there. But, uh, um, uh, you know, I I think you have to strike balances. And um, I'm all for striking balances. Charlie, uh, thanks for joining us on the show today. Sadly, we've run out of time. Uh, I hope you can join us again. Uh, Our guest in this half hour was one of America's foremost political analysts, Charlie Cook, publisher and founder of the book. Cook Political Report. You might want to check out the Cook Political Report at Cook Political Report. You may want to subscribe. We'll be back more with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon right after these messages. Okay, we're back with more 
of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour on the uh, political, the provocative progressive political panel, uh, panel uh, is Nick Guthman, who is the founder and executive director of Our Blue Future. Uh, joining us on the panel, as he does always, is our own executive producer, Mark Grimaldi. Uh, One of the things that I want to talk about on the panel today, uh, since Nick is a guest, is uh, the uh, youth movement in the Democratic Party, which, of course, uh, brings me to one of the Democratic presidential candidates, uh, Mayor uh, Pete Buttigieg. Uh, He had a target on his back in last week's presidential debate, even though he's still in single digits in the national polls of Democratic primary voters. The question is, why the fu- all the fuss over a candidate who's back in the pack in the national polls? The answer is that Mayor Pete is on the top of the leaderboard in the first two states, Iowa and New Hampshire, that select delegates to the Democratic National Convention. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar attacked Mayor Pete for being too inexperienced to be an effective president. His comeback was, quote, Washington experience is not the only experience that matters. There's more than 100 years of experience on this stage, and where are we now as a country? Unquote. Well played, Mayor Pete. He's the kind of outsider who has thrived in a political environment where Americans still distrust and even hate Washington, D.C. For some Democrats, the years of congressional experience that Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders have is a welcome antidote to Donald Trump's lack of political background. But to many Americans, long service in Washington is still the kiss of death. The Iowa caucuses in the New Hampshire Democratic primary are less than three months away. Super Tuesday is only 100 days away. We'll find out soon if Americans want an an old pro or a young gun to take on Donald Trump next November. If you want to be part of the roundtable and talk directly to me and our guest, you can call us at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Nick, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Brad. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, We're glad to have you on. Uh, First of all, since uh, I was talking about Mayor Pete and the youth movement in uh, democratic politics, tell us a little bit about uh, our blue future and the plans you have for campaign 2020. So uh, Blue Future is a youth-led organizing uh, uh, organization. We focus on providing students with the resources they need, primarily financial investment, so that they can unleash uh, campus uh, voter registration and volunteer recruitment for Democratic campaigns up and down the ticket. Uh, Just in the past two or so weeks, we are so proud of the work that our student organizers led in Virginia where we flipped the legislature in Kentucky, where we helped elect the Democratic governor, uh, in Mississippi, where we made gains uh, in, in, uh, in the race for the governorship, uh, although we lost. And then, of course, uh, most recently in Louisiana, re-electing a Democrat to the governorship and holding off a, a Republican supermajority 
uh, which has a real, you know, significant implications uh, for folks in Louisiana, uh, particularly as it relates to gerrymandering. But moving into 2020, Blue Future is very excited to make grants again to student organizers across the country who are working on competitive congressional districts and Senate races. Um, we won't really be involved in the presidential primary, um, uh, at least not until, you know, sort of late, later in the summer months. Um, but we will be focused as early as January of 2020 on registering voters, knocking on doors, making phone calls for Democrats who have tough re-election uh, in the House and uh, some of our, our uh, upcoming Senate uh, races uh, where we think we might be able to make a real difference. Uh, let me ask you this, Nick, and then I'll ask Mark the same question. Are Democrats better off nominating an old pro as president uh, or a young gun? Uh, th- the three top Democratic candidates uh, are all in their 70s. Uh, we got another 70-something candidate in the race uh, yesterday when Mike Bloomfield uh, announced he was getting in the race uh, does it matter to young voters uh, the age of the Democratic presidential candidate in terms of getting them out to vote in 2020? Look, there will be millions of new voters uh, compared to 2016 who are eager to cast their ballot for the Democratic nominee, whoever they may be. Um, I'm very hopeful that young people will show up uh, and, and you know, not only beat Donald Trump in 2020, but hopefully elect a progressive champion um, who will deliver real wins for all of us. And frankly, I, I think it's less about how old some of the candidates are and more about the values that they share and the message that they're sending and the kind of country that they would like to lead and build. And so the candidates who are talking most directly about racial justice, about bold action to address the climate crisis, reproductive freedom, uh, and addressing student debt, uh, you know, some of, some, those are some of the top issues that uh, are, are appealing to young voters and uh, are going to fire us up to do the hard work of organizing uh, for the, the Democratic nominee. I don't think it's as much about a, a new young gun or outside of Washington or lots of experience. It's more about the progressive values because our generation, my generation, is the most progressive generation this country has ever seen, and we're ready for you know, real change. Okay, Mark, what do you think? Do you think the Democrats would be better off nominating an old pro or young gun to take on Donald Trump? You know, I I, I think that the issues uh, define uh, the race more so, like you were mentioning in the previous segment, Brad, um, health care and where the candidates stand on an issue that we saw was the difference in the 2018 midterm elections. Now, that was the, the choice of Republicans completely dismantling the Affordable Care Act um, and getting rid of protections for those with pre-existing conditions or keeping uh, or putting Democrats in power in the House to stop that. So that was a very clear choice. Um, and, you know, the polling on that was massively in favor of keeping uh, the Affordable Care Act and its protections. This election is more so about personal preference on where you want to see 
our healthcare system go in the future. So I think that there are more options. And the candidates, even, for instance, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who are seen as the two most progressive candidates regarding health care and medical for, Medicare for all, they even have nuanced differences, as um, you know, your previous guest, Charlie Cook, had mentioned how Elizabeth Warren has refined her plan. Um, so I think those are things that are more important to the primary care voters uh, excuse me, the primary <laughs> primary care for health care, uh, the primary voters uh, that are going into the election. But I do think, you know, it, it could be a matter of relatability, uh, just like some candidates who are older, like baby boomers, might find themselves more drawn to maybe an older candidate because they can relate to them. As Nick had mentioned, um, the massive amount of youth voters that made such a big difference in Virginia, Virginia and Kentucky are primed to break records in the 2020 uh, election. Uh, so I think that it's going to be important for them to feel like they can relate to the candidate as well. So maybe if it was a, a close choice between two candidates and you had someone who was younger, they may find them uh, more relatable because of age. But I don't think it's going to necessarily be uh, a defining factor uh, going forward, in my opinion. Okay. Uh, Nick, you brought up the subject of the uh, Democratic success in the midterm, uh, in the 2019 elections. Uh, My guess is that uh, Donald Trump is probably going to end up, we uh, elected a new Democratic governor in Kentucky. Uh, We retained an incumbent Democratic uh, governor uh, in Louisiana, uh, but it's my guess when all said and done, Donald Trump's going to end up winning the electoral votes in Louisiana uh, and uh, and in Kentucky. Uh, we did do well in Virginia, which is a classic battleground state. So l- let me ask you this: since you were involved and in, uh, you had organizers in the two nine two thousand nineteen races. What did we learn uh, uh, in two thousand the two thousand nineteen elections that we can carry over uh, into two thousand twenty? That's a great question, and we're still sort of fielding data and having conversations with our uh, student organizers who are on the ground uh, in each of those states. But I I think one of the top line messages which I find to be true of this entire, you know, era of resistance and during the Trump years is that there is real work to be done everywhere and we must organize everywhere and we can win everywhere. Um, But it takes significant investment. And, you know, we were just one of the many groups who uh, made a decision to invest and put money into some of these statewide races, and particularly in the South, where traditionally Democrats don't do so well. And I would argue that we haven't done so well as a party in those states because there hasn't been uh, as much focus and attention in organizing as as was needed. And if we hope that these places will just change, you know, uh, over time without making strategic long-term investments, uh, we're never going to see the change that we'd like uh, in, in some of these southern states. So, you know, there's organizing to be done everywhere. And when we organize, we can win. I would say my top message and that's what we're going to be doing, uh, you know, Blue Future and all the other mobilization groups who are working every single day to register every voter in every congressional district um, and telling that, telling a story when they're on the doors, knocking, knocking on doors for uh, Democratic candidates, you know, really telling a story 
that touches the issues, uh, makes people understand and feel like they've been heard uh, by the candidate that everybody is representing when they're out on the doors, and really telling a story of who we are as a country and what we can become, the resilience, the power we have when we stand together uh, as Americans uh, and stand up for our democracy. And, you know, I, I truly believe if we organize and if we all vote, uh, we will win in 2020, and that was what, what we did in, in 2019. Okay, we're going to go to break now. Uh, this is Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. Uh, as usual in the second half hour, we are paneling our provocative progressive political panel. We'll be back with more of the panel right after these messages. Leslie Marshall, Real People, Real Life, Real Talk, 888-6-LESLIE. have a caller on the line, uh, so let's go to the caller right now. And our caller on line two is our good friend from Georgia, Reggie. Reggie, how are you doing today? It's good to hear from you. It's good to hear from you too, Brad. As I was telling Marky Mark earlier, uh, why is it taking him so damn long to impeach him, and why aren't the Republicans in the White House and his cabinet administration doing anything to try to stop him from tweeting or his personal acts? You know, his personal and professional acts. You know, why aren't, they, why aren't they trying to stop him? Are they scared of him? Does he have something over them, like control or power over them? Over them? <laughs> Does he have secrets on him or something? Well, Does he know anything about you know, their that, past or something, you know? That's a very good question, Reggie, because I was thinking the same thing when I was watching the, the testimony last week. My impression was the testimony was pretty damning, uh, and showed that there, the president was pursuing uh, a quid pro quo. Uh, we'll give you arms to protect yourself from the Russians. Uh, all you have to do is turn over some dirt on Joe Biden. And it's amazing how uh, Republicans continue to defend the president with such damning testimony. So let's ask the panel, uh, Nick, why do you think Republicans are you know, so dead set on defending everything Donald Trump does, uh, despite the fact that there's such compelling evidence that he is corrupt, uh, his bargaining with uh, the Ukraine was corrupt. What, why, what is it with the Republicans? Why are they so intent on drinking the Kool-Aid? It's a, it's a question for the century. I, I'm not sure I have much to offer in terms of what's stopping them from doing the right thing, other than they've been with this guy since the start, and, uh, and they've been enabling him since the start, and uh, they don't want to turn their back uh, on their guy. Um, and maybe he does have something over. But, you know, first, it's important to note that we're only able to hold this president accountable because we organized, like, never before uh, in 2018 to elect a Democratic congressman. You know, we know he did something wrong. We must remind our fellow Americans and our Republican members of Congress uh, that no one is above the law. And we must, you know, tell the story, again, of who we are as a country, educate the public, encourage them to take action, uh, you know, on the facts, and, 
you know, again, we know he committed crimes that are worthy of impeachment and removal, which, of course, are necessary steps toward achieving a democracy that serves all of us. And at the end of the day, uh, our, our leaders in Congress are going to follow the people. And if we win in the court of public opinion, uh, if we're able to, um, you know, beat the drum on the message of impeachment, saying that if the average person did what Trump has done, they would go to jail. It's as simple as that. And we need to continue to call, to write, to rally, to protest, uh, and make sure uh, our members of Congress, particularly Republican members who are uh, who should be ashamed for not standing up on the right side of history and putting country over party. Um, uh, we need to remind them of that every single day until they do the right thing. Mark, why don't you take a shot at answering Reggie's question? Why are Republicans so dead set on drinking the Trump Kool-Aid? Well, I think that there are a couple factors um, that are pretty clear. Now, I don't think they're the only factors, uh, but... I think that his support within the Republican Party remains high um, despite his bad acts. And, you know, they seem to support him almost no matter what. And those are the same voters that Republicans are worried about keeping. So their logic is as long as the voters continue to support Trump, the Republican voters, they're going to continue to support him and twist their principles in whatever way, shape or form they need to do so uh, in order to, in their minds, do what they need to do to get reelected because they have seen what happens to those like Mark Sanford or, um, you know, at times Mitt Romney, who's been back and forth as to his support for Trump, you know, Lamar Alexander, you know, uh, um, Jeff Flake. They're, uh, most of them are all of the Republican Party, save for Romney, uh, who, when he did get elected, was talking in support of Trump. So I think that's as simple it is as it is. They think Trump will go after them if they don't support him and he'll you know, primary them or support someone who primaries them. And I think if you see the numbers of number of Republicans supporting Trump decrease, then I think you may see some, uh, deflect, you know, defections in the Republican Party. If you look what happened uh, under Nixon and Bush at the end of their political careers uh, and you saw the dip in support from people in the Republican Party, then you saw other people speaking up. Now, I also think there were more people who were independent minded during those times, whereas now it seems like a cult. Um, and the people who support Trump get their news strictly uh, from places that are much more conservative. Uh, at times, Trump saying Fox News isn't even conservative enough, pointing to uber-conservative net- networks like OANN. Um, those are the type of people who are consuming that media and then supporting him. So I think that's a huge portion of it, but I do hope that the impeachment hearings um, continue to expose the truths that uh, are uncomfortable for Republicans to look in the mirror and, and accept and then continue to support him. Um, that's my hope. Yeah, I think a lot of it is the country is so polarized. We live in different worlds than the Trump supporters. We live in one world. They live in another world. Uh, you know, which raises another question, which I'll oppose to you. And thanks, Reggie, for calling, by the way. Always glad to hear from you. Uh, the quest- My question is, why is it that, uh, well, you know what, I think I'm probably going to stop my question because we're running out of time, uh, but we can only hope that at least some of the independents in the middle uh, get to see the light and we can build a majority that's ready to get rid of Trump and his acolytes, especially in the Senate. That's all for today, folks. Thanks to my guest, Charlie Cook.
of the Political Report, Nick Guthman of Our Blue Future, and our own executive producer, Mark Grimaldi. Talk to you next Monday.